0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. This is Taiva Batul and I'm one of the hosts for the Urban Studies Channel. I'm here today with author and professor Dr. Alvaro Sevilla-Boitrago to talk about his new book, Against the Commons, a Radical History of Urban Planning, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Alvaro, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Tayva, and thanks for having me.
0: Great. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Uh, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm based in Spain, in Madrid. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Town and Regional Planning at Universidad Politecnica de Madrid, as you mentioned. Uh, my work sits at the intersection of uh, urban theory, uh, critical geography and planning history. I'm interested in the nexus of urban processes and political economy, and especially in how urbanization, planning policy, uh, design, cultures, and practices uh, shape so- social change. So, as, as we will see today, my primary research theme is the history of spatial struggles around the commons, but I have also written about topics such as uh, new urban social movements, um, the intensification of neoliberal urban policy uh, after the Great Recession, um, the politics of landscape architecture, or the use of the work of uh, thinkers such as Henri Lefebvre or Antonio Gramsci in in urban theory. I'm also a trained uh, architect and planner and before becoming an academic, I, I worked in practice uh, for about 10 years. And I, I mentioned this because uh, per, perhaps the, the first impulse to, to write a book um, comes from that period. Um, it was uh, a very interesting period of my professional life, an eye-opening experience, I would say, that left me with a certain uneasiness, you know, a certain... A certain dissatisfaction with the failure of of the failure of planning mechanisms to to fulfill the the progressive mission that they are supposed to pursue, at least according to to planning theory. Uh, you know, I was kind of desperate to see how difficult it is to to prioritize the needs, and and I should also say the capacities, the needs and the capacities of deprived communities in, in planning policy It felt like like there's something in the very techniques and the institutional arrangements that often hinders those those efforts. and, and what struck me most perhaps um, was the fact that the available narratives often pay uh, little attention to this contradiction you know to this gap that exists between what, what planning is uh, supposed to do and what planners actually do and particularly narratives in the genre of of planning history, plan- panoramic planning history, uh, planning theory, you know, texts that uh, shape the self-perception of the discipline, texts that tell planners who they are, what they do, and, and so on. And, and most of them, they tend to uh, legitimize planning as something intrinsically benign. So, yeah, I, I felt that we uh, needed... New narratives and to challenge this this dominant um, viewpoints and narratives that pay more more attention to to the everyday drama of urbanization, to the capacities of these uh, vulnerable groups to to use space as a source of collective power, and the impact that planning initiatives usually have on, on them. Um, of course, there are uh, very important uh, uh, critical interventions available in the literature, but they often focus on you know particular experiences or episodes. And this is why I wanted the book to be more panoramic, uh, in the sense that it covers uh, episodes from very different contexts and periods. So it shows that dispossession you know, is not an accident. Uh, it's it's a structural feature of space, spatial planning. And and I would say that another reason to write the book was to try and advance recent discussions uh, and debates about the commons through a more systematic engagement with the urban question. Um, you know... Um, the the contributions in the sphere of critical theory, they're fundamental, but they tend to be a bit naive about how urbanization works, like how it works on the ground, you know? And activists, uh, they're often more aware of how harmful urban policies may be, but I think that they can also benefit from a more consistent uh, understanding of um, the mechanics of spatial politics. So, yes, I, I, I... Yes, I wanted to write something that activists, uh, both activists and scholars interested in the commons will hopefully find useful to, to understand and confront urban processes.
0: Super. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really wonderful to read the sort of theoretical and socio-historical analysis that you present in the book. And you'll uh, you write about how urban planning and capitalist urbanization have come to decollectivize society and dispossess it of communal space and communal rights. Um, in the introduction to the book, uh, there's an emphasis on the need to combine a history from below perspective with this sort of long durée um, political economy focus. And this comes up in later chapters, also where you demonstrate how we achieved. Uh, this theorization uh, by locating the effects of urbanization, whether as a liberating or a repressive process, or in other words, uh, how planning comes to make vulnerable populations autonomous or not. Um, Could you perhaps say more on how this dialectic of capitalist development and urban planning framed your key argument and set the stage for analysis uh, in your book?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so the the the, the, um, the accounts you you usually find uh, in terms of uh, planning history and, and theory and and urban policies more generally, they tend to present um, planning uh, as a remedial technique that is relatively detached from um, the political economy of a, of a certain. Uh, society or, or uh, political economic regime, you know, so remedial in the sense that it's it's it comes to fix uh, or to repair or to uh, palliate the damage that the economy or certain political regimes uh, do to uh, to cities, to territories, and and so on. And I, I so when I uh, started the research. Um, I wanted to to complicate this um this uh, narrative a little bit by by showing that urbanization is is actually a side of struggle and that planning and urban policies are the result of those uh, struggles so uh, from the very title of the book you know against the commons planning against the commons and um, this idea of of how planning god um gets um involved in 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 these struggles is uh, i think uh, obvious so the book um on the one hand um uh, explores the ability of these deprived communities to to build spaces of autonomy around shared resources and cooperative practices, and how the attempts to dismantle those spaces inform the evolution of urban planning and and more generally of capitalist politics, uh, uh, capitalist uh, spatial politics, and urbanization uh, more, more generally. So uh, yes, focusing on the commons and social reproduction was a way to to see uh, to to show how urbanization and spatial politics um, become instruments that that promote these processes of decollectivization, disempowerment, and, and dispossession of poor and, and working class uh, communities. This, of course, runs against the conventional wisdom in in several ways, especially in terms of uh, what planners think of themselves. They they usually think of their work as as a service to the common good. And and beyond that, in in the sphere of critical theory, as I mentioned, urbanization and and, and the modern metropolis, they tend to be described as sources and reservoirs of of commons. But this is often at at odds with the evidence, right? Mm. So, yes, in order to challenge this view, I use this idea that urbanization is a site of struggle, a struggle between competing social forces that try to use uh, space to organize uh, society. Um, And I see this this struggle as an expression of a broader... um, contradiction um, around or a broader conflict around social reproduction. You know, the need uh, under capitalism, the need that capitalism has have to, to uh, secure a coherent social basis in the face of its own uh, destabilizing tendencies and particularly the need, of course, to reproduce um, popular groups and working people as subaltern classes in order to secure its own survival, uh, continuity, and, and, and expansion. How do you do that? Well, among other things, you try to neutralize the capacity of these groups to reproduce outside the system, you know, both materially and, and culturally. And you try to erase their autonomy as far as it fuels antagonism. And well, um, autonomy, self-reproduction, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that the commons uh, nurture. And this is why we see this effort to decommonize uh, society. So so, yes, as you said, the book interrogates the role of urbanization in these struggles around the commons and around social reproduction. The dynamics, these dynamics usually have a strong spatial basis. So spatial politics and planning in particular are likely to become instruments, active instruments in this strategy to try to dismantle the commons and disempower these, these communities.
0: Great. Uh, And I think one of the other things you also highlight in the introduction and how you mentioned it right now is that this dispossession happens in multiple incremental ways. And uh, there are three main dimensions that um, are highlighted in the introduction, first being the seizure of material resources such as common land, food or energy systems. The second is the dispossession of specifically uh, organizational or relational resources. And the third you mentioned is the disposition of symbolic resources. And this intersection of materiality relations and values as they're reproduced and produced under different regimes of commoning and urban planning uh, is is something I'm sure will reoccur in our conversation. As we move on to chapter one, uh, there is a focus on how privatization of land as a process led to the enclosure of common land and elimination of common rights throughout 18th- and 19th-century England. Uh, Your critique of the project of improvement that is enforced upon farming illustrates that the reproduction of territory as fixed capital is one that also displaces local uh, local social practices and participation. And I was struck by the example uh, where you bring in William Wirth's story to show how the autonomy of different segments of society is compromised. And there's a specific example where women and children uh, used to be more autonomous in participating in the common spaces as a part of their everyday household task. But under the banner of improvement um, and the implementation of enclosures, their mobility and autonomy becomes uh, subservient to that larger project. And uh, so I'd love to hear more on how the Marxist idea of urbanization of countryside helps um, and the sort of literary analysis that you bring in helps us understand capitalist restructuring in your book
1: yeah yeah so, so let me uh, first dwell for a minute on one thing you mentioned um, uh, at the beginning of the question and is that this that um, this uh, the dynamic of the or the logic that drives um, the the trajectories that the book uh, describes these struggles between uh, commoning efforts by deprived communities and planning efforts by usually by state and and, and and economic elites uh, which is like a sort of uh, dialectic um, uh, through history and as you said the book explores several different dimensions of uh, commoning I, I like to talk about commoning frontiers, and at the same time, dispossession frontiers, and how to to see the development of those frontiers and the opening and and expansion of new frontiers of commoning and dispossession somehow shapes the evolution, the emergence of uh, planning paradigms uh, through history and so on. So as you mentioned uh, the book, um, explores different um, expressions of uh, commoning, and and also different uh, forms of or modalities of, of planning in response to the challenge um, that uh, that the commons constitute. So the first uh, chapter, as you say, focuses on actually on the countryside, which is uh, perhaps uh, it might comes as a surprise for some readers. Um, you know, of course, um, um, planning, urban planning history usually, uh, focuses on cities and, uh, metropolitan areas and, and so on. And with this first chapter, I wanted to, um, to challenge a little bit this, this, um, this, uh, traditional view, um, drawing on recent, um, recent contributions in the sphere of of urban theory, some of them, of course, in the Marxist tradition. So, um, a a group of colleagues in the field of urban theory, including uh, Neil Brenner, uh, Christian Schmidt, and others, have been arguing that we should understand urbanization not only as the growth of cities, Um, but uh, actually as a a broader dialectic that binds together uh, processes of agglomeration in cities and the production of much um, larger um, hinterlands upon which um, cities ultimately depend to to thrive, right? And so this is one thing. This this explains the focus on the countryside. And I should also add the book, this first chapter, This places the origins of uh, urban planning not only in space, but also in time, because the the narratives, the the available narratives, usually see planning starting at the end of the nineteenth century or the turn of the twentieth century. And I suggest that we should look at earlier stages, if we're um, considering that uh, planning or or spatial politics may have played uh, a key role in the constitution of constitution and, and cyclical restructuring of capitalism then we should look at the very origin of, of capitalism as at least as some uh, scholars have uh, understood and, and located it in the uh, 17th uh, 18th centuries right so I look at this um, um, process of um, these vast processes of land and agrarian restructuring that took that took place in, in England from the in, in this period, in the turn of the of the 18th century. Uh, as you say, um, these, are, these processes were part of what political economists and the Marxist tradition identify as primitive accumulation forms of accumulation that predate and enable the rise of industrial capitalism. Uh, But they were also forms of territorial restructuring that inaugurated and extended this idea that what Marx called the urbanization of the countryside. Urbanization of the countryside in the sense that rural spaces and populations are increasingly captured by logics and markets led led from cities, right, and by elites um, that usually work uh, from cities and, and so on. So in in England, um, these processes of land restructuring were implemented mm, through this mechanism called enclosure and entailed not only the consolidation of uh, property, uh, but also the privatization of common land and the elimination of customary or common rights. Um, The process was... um, was, uh, um, have, have, have been taking place uh, for for various centuries since at least since the 1400s, but in the 18th century, it experiments a substantial change in scale and scope with a new, uh, more systematic form of enclosure, uh, parliamentary enclosure acts, which. Um, present a striking parallels, I, I should say, with subsequent forms of urban or, or spatial planning. Not only technical parallels, but also similarities in terms of the political strategies behind these enclosure acts. the strategies targeting the commons and targeting subaltern reproduction. You know, at that time... Um, Political economists, um, agrarian improvers, land surveyors, began to see parliamentary enclosure as a national effort to mobilize uh, rural land and rural labor. Um, at a time when England was uh, trying to compete with uh, uh, the Netherlands um, uh, to 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 get uh, to 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 gain a higher position as a world hegemon, right? And for for these elites, the Commons were A source of idleness and political antagonism that gave uh, small peasants and rural laborers a relative independence from wages and markets. So they had to be eradicated in order to make the entire territory of England and uh, labor force of England more productive, the the commons should disappear. This would trigger a substantial increase in agrarian output, according to them. Um, This would, of course, entail um, the dispossession or the separation from the commons of these large um, masses of the rural poor. Which uh, would then depend on wages to survive, so that they, they would be more productively employed in the rising manufactories, in the countrysides on or in cities. And as you mentioned, uh, yes, these pre-capitalist forms of of um, uh, management of uh, uh, fields, of the open fields in the countryside, allowed forms of independence that. Um, that were not only related to, to aspects of of class but also affected uh issues of 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 gender of generation and and so on um the commons the, the common rights um uh allowed uh, f- informal incomes um that uh, were usually um um Collected. I mean, the, the the practices that these rights allowed were usually exercised by women and children. Uh, adult men would go to work for wages, and meanwhile, the women and children would take care of of uh, you know gleaning grain in in the in the fields, gathering wood uh, in the forests, um, uh, gathering. Uh, herbs uh, or, or materials that they could use to, to build, build their houses, to to fix um, uh, tools and, and, and so on. So they gave not only the whole Class of uh, the rural poor, a certain independence from markets, but also to women and, and children, they gave them a certain independence within the households. They gave them a certain sphere of, of autonomy, right? And since the commons, the, the, the open fields, were also sort of public space in the sense that they allowed uh, encounters among these users of public space. Um, women and children also found in them spaces to to socialize and and interact that would of course disappear when enclosure came and 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 closed uh, all these uh, all these spaces right so yeah um uh, and, and and as i said um this large scale long term um economic and social project um, including this strategy of dispossession was uh, connected to the transformation of of space and the disruption of the bonds of uh, rural communities with their with their territory through these acts of enclosure, which uh, I suggest should be understood as as early forms of capitalist spatial planning. Indeed, at some point, the same instruments, the same enclosure acts, uh, began to be used to, to arrange uh, building areas in the outskirts of towns, right, to, to absorb uh, city growth.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, thank you. And I think that also provides us a good segue into Chapter 2, where we see that it's not just about the spatial transformation, uh, but also about the conduct and the sort of moralizing force of what is possible to do within that space, um, uh, within the public space. Um, in chapter two, the book takes the case of New York and Chicago as early industrial cities to show the assemblage of material and relational practices that emphasize a shift towards ordered urbanization and there are three sh- aspects uh, to, uh, that are necessary to attain this strategy uh, that uh, you emphasize in this chapter. The first is the sense of uh, loyalty to a larger community of city and nation. And the second is to instruct workers and children on what is the quote unquote proper way to really own the city. And the third is the emphasis on the publicity of commons. Uh, which is integral to shaping urban consciousness. Um, I'm curious, why did you decide to focus on New York and Chicago, and how do these places then illuminate the publicity of commons?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, great question. Um, several reasons, I guess. Uh, one of them, of course, is that public space is usually seen as the quintessential urban commons, right? So in a book about the, the, the struggles between spatial policies and commons, uh, there should be a chapter on public space. Uh, although I complicated a, a little bit the idea of public space, as, as we will see. And then another is, is within the narrative that I was trying to, to develop. I, I was um, wondering, well, all these dispossessed people from the previous chapter, um, uh, you know, people whose um, uh, bones with, uh, with uh, land are, are broken or erased, where will they go? well they usually went to to large cities you know to industrializing cities and of course, I, I'm not trying to establish a direct continuity between the, the protagonists of the first chapter and the second. But yes, the, the, the masses of proletarians that arrive, that descend in New York, Chicago, and, and this kind of industrialized and heavily industrializing cities in the 19th century are sometimes dispossessed populations coming from rural uh, realms in, 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 in Europe or in the American South and, and, and elsewhere, Right. So, yes, uh, those were perhaps two, two, two reasons. Now, the, the, the issue of, of uh, public space, um, you know, um, uh, public space and, and, and public facilities, as I mentioned, are usually seen as the quintessential urban commons and efforts to to resist um urban enclosure of public space tend to concentrate on struggles against the privatization and and commodification of these spaces which is totally fine and and necessary by the way but um we sometimes forget that public space is also a powerful tool that planners states and elites sometimes use To shape publicity. I use this notion of publicity um, to to refer to the regime of of, uh, practices and imaginations that demarcate uh, uh, the divide between public and private space, the way we use uh, public space, the norms that regulate who belongs in these spaces and who doesn't, and and so on. And these are things publicity uh, can be designed you know, it's, it's not as spontaneous. Uh, at least uh, it's not as spontaneous um, um, uh, from a certain point in history on. And I focus on this in this uh, period, um, the second half of the 19th century and early 20th century. This is, of course, the era of urban reform. It is a more benign moment. Uh, Compared with the one we have uh, examined in the previous chapter, uh, and planning history usually presents this this period with as some as one invested in, in with a progressive mission, you know. But there are also aspects that, at least from the perspective of the commons, well, they don't look that that great. So um, this chapter explores how these dispossessed masses that arrived in the city, usually ethnicized and racialized communities, reimagined city streets and collective spaces as commons uh, during this period, and and how bourgeois reform envisioned uh, a system of of public facilities that were meant to replace those um, subaltern commons. So, um, yes, the the, the chapter explores how working class communities uh, uh, reimagined these uh, streets and wastelands of the industrial city as a material and social resource, uh, which in turn fueled uh, antagonism, uh, riots, strikes, and so on. And of course, the elite and and sectors of the emerging middle classes saw this with uh, anxiety. And they sought, uh, they sought to create these alternative places of encounter, these alternative uh, commons, control from above, that would uh, provide fundamental services to the poor. And, and we have to uh, recognize that uh, they, would, they provided fundamental services for the poor, but at the same time, those services were somehow... Uh, so they would educate uh, the working poor in a completely different form of uh, publicity and sociality. One which, um, among other things, uh, would undermine their capacity to appropriate public space and to turn publicity into a source of of, uh, popular power. So uh, yes in, in terms of the the uh, cases that the chapter uh, explores, I focus on projects for public parks, uh, playgrounds, um, settlement houses, uh, community centers and, and and so on. you know this, these are um, some of the facilities that would later constitute the essential repertoire of public services. That uh, planning usually deploys still today, you know.
0: Right, and I think this also brings us to the sort of fetishization of centrality uh, that leads on uh, as part of your analysis in the chapter uh, where you're looking at pre at uh, earlier early 20th century Berlin and. way in which central planning apparatus are intended to provide a more egalitarian spatial infrastructure. Um, But many of those efforts towards urban renewal and reform come at the cost of of disempowering certain segments of the population and certain values. Um, And one of the things that stood out for me was how you also described representational practices uh, in this chapter, which in a lot of ways continues from uh, the the notion of publicity. Uh, could you say more about this engagement with cultural and creative expressions?
1: Yeah. Um, yes. Um, uh, it, this, of course, has to do with the way planning is conceived throughout the book. So perhaps we should have talked about this earlier. Uh, but... Um, so the book focuses or, the, or defines planning not only as city plans or ordinances or uh, particular, you know, zoning policies and so on, which are the, the, the classical stuff in, in, in books about urban planning, but also looks at uh, a broader constellation of uh, practices and um, uh, agencies uh, ideologies that revolve around this uh, medium and long term strategies to transform space or or perhaps more accurately uh, strategies to use space to shape or guide uh, social change right so i don't only i don't don't only look at um uh, at plans or ordinances or building densities and so on, but also to issues of urban imaginaries and how uh, planners usually try to uh, engage those languages and and uh, and media in order to um, uh, um, develop their their strategy so I I also look at aspects of architecture of uh, cultural policies uh, of the way for instance architects and planners um, collaborate with uh, the press with visual media and so on because ultimately um some of the battles that the, the book explores are, are battles in the realm of representation as you as you say and in the realm of how uh, those representations shape subjectivities identities and, and and so on right so um yeah so yes so chapter three uh, focuses on, in on, on Berlin during the Weimar Republic and to focus on what i call the commons of centrality right and the idea of centrality refers here to how urban hierarchies are organized so the way um, land uses uh, economic activities uh, but also social groups and cultural uh, meanings um and also political power, the way these things are distributed are usually differentiated, segregated, and unevenly distributed within cities. Um, So this chapter pays um, special attention to the notion of neighborhood as working-class territory. Um, As I said, it deals with aspects of identity, of subjectivity. It shows how working-class communities... Manage to to create conditions of subaltern centrality, both in the city core in Berlin and in the in the outskirts, uh, producing a, a sort of network of uh, functional alternative co- functional cultural and, and, and political alliances that bridge the divide between center and, and periphery. And then I explore how. The municipality during this period in the 1920s uh, mostly how the municipality uh, a certain a, a center-left center coalition I should say uh, how the municipality strive to impose a more conventional uh, segregated urban hierarchy so in this scheme on uh, the center was now conceived as a hub of commercial and recreational activities for an emerging middle class with a certain certain cosmopolitan uh, aspiration. And peripheries were increasingly envisioned uh, fundamentally as residential areas, deprived of vitality, deprived of centrality, deprived of complexity. And ultimately, also deprived of political thrust—the political thrust that was so characteristic of uh, working-class neighborhoods at the time. So this project involved, um, you know, classic policies such as urban renewal, the displacement of working-class population in the city core, and so on. The And at the same time, the implementation of social housing and facility programs uh, to shape a new form of periphery. But also, it was heavily invested in this representation of struggles. And this is a, a chapter where we see architects and planners. Uh, engaging uh, very actively in, in, in uh, uh, debates uh, in the press, in the visual media magazines, and, and, and so on, right? Um, some of these aspects are um, relatively well known in the literature in German, uh, but I also pay in this chapter more attention to lesser known, Aspects, including, uh, for instance, um, the attempt to monitor everyday community life, uh, the attempt to monitor the cultures and representations of place, um, the use of space and housing to promote uh, a particular culture, a classless, um, consumption-driven mass culture, and at the same time the 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 processes of uh, gradual marginalization of proletarian cultures and proletarian subjectivities, both in the realm of uh, hard urban policies and in the realm of representations during this during this period.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think there is something about photography that you also mentioned in this chapter that becomes uh, crucial uh, as this form of technology that allows for the proliferation of a certain uh, identity and subjectivity.
1: Um, this is a period when uh, architects, planners, engineers start to co- collaborate with photographers, with artists. There's a strong sense of the uh, art avant-garde, of course, during this period. Uh, so there are many experiments in the realm of, of uh, visual languages and, and so on that architects and planners are eager to, to engage uh, with. You know, and so so we see these direct collaborations between uh, these. different Different uh, professional um, uh, groups at, during at, at this time.
0: Absolutely, uh, the last uh, case that you present for us is uh, the neoliberal transformations that are happening in Milan, and here there is an intersection of the way that grassroots initiatives are met with tactical urbanized, uh, urbanisms and. Uh, I was really curious to hear about the case of Scali Ferrovire screen, where this public land, uh, where public land such as old railway stations, will be redeveloped into mixed-use residential developments. Could you say more about where, how do these more projects happen, uh, how these projects have been morphosized and um, what do they suggest about the future of the commons?
1: yeah in, in, but yes in order to to talk about this cali ferroviari which is an ongoing project i i should say uh, so the the book here enters uh, also a realm of of uh uh not history but actually critique critique of uh, ongoing processes but in order to understand what, what the, the the interesting the interesting point about this project we have to uh we have to um, talk about um how well the, the main um, focus of this chapter which is how creativity collective creativity comes to be captured in this uh, uh, developing developers strategies real estate strategies and 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 so on right um so um recent debates um on the relationship between uh, creativity and, and the urban, usually miss the point that creativity itself is also an, an object of social struggles. Right? Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk about creative milieus, about the relation um, between the creative class, the so-called creative class, and cities, and so on. And we miss we we we, we usually forget that. Creativity in history is also um, an arena of struggle. So in order to explore this, I look at these um, um, dynamics uh, and struggles over creativity commons uh, in Milan since the 1960s. Um, well, collective creativity is, is, in a way, it's the very engine of, of the commons, right? So uh, the chapter presents... Uh, a more constructive but nevertheless harmful uh, planning approach. It looks at how a new generation of urban policies are trying not to destroy, but actually to co-opt, to incorporate somehow, and to sanitize the commons. How they are trying to capture these collective capacities to uh, reimagine places uh, especially, especially in context of urban decline, and at the same time, at the same time, how these strategies are at the same time um, trying to remove um, the antagonistic quality of of subaltern commons. So I first look at uh, the specialities of of social movements in Italy in the late uh, 1960s and 1970s, and particularly of autonomia, which was um, a constellation of radical groups, uh, not only workers, but also, you know, students, uh, feminists, um, underground culture collectives, and and so on. Um, And these groups, uh, faced with industrial and and urban decline, they they, they, they develop, they deploy this fascinating repertoire of creative strategies to appropriate space, to use space to regain control over their everyday life, and ultimately also to uh, revalorize uh, places and, and communities, right? And some of these groups, uh, particularly those in the realm of cultural production, uh, maintain this kind of territoriality and and, and capacities and abilities um, and these capacities to reimagine uh, spaces in decline in a very different political context in the 1980s and 1990s. So the the, the chapter on Milan um, examines how urban regeneration uh, policies and agendas have co-opted this and similar collective projects. Um, it's, not only, it's no longer a question of, of removing the commons, but actually an attempt to commodify the commons, to use them as a source of value at a time when conventional planning strategies seem increasingly incapable of overcoming the crisis that they sometimes create, right? So Milan is, is, is a laboratory of, of neoliberal urban policy since the 1980s. Uh, it has experienced massive deregulation and planned gentrification, city branding, place commodification, and and so on. Uh, but but the, this attempt to take advantage of, Uh, and build upon um, this collective creativity or creativity commons becomes especially evident from the 1919s on. So uh, in terms of the Scali Ferroviari uh, project, um, the very interesting thing in, in this project is that how the municipality has offered... To open uh, those spaces of former railway stations within Milan which have been abandoned for a long long time uh, now there's a, um, a strategy to redevelop them to turn them into a uh, huge um, uh, developments of uh, residential um, blocks and offices and, and so on which is in that sense, it's totally standard urban planning. But the interesting thing is how this uh, this project also incorporates um, um, uh, a scheme that. Uh, it, it, it has been used in in, in Milan uh, before. The book, the chapter explores that, but but here particularly, um, it incorporates this idea of taking advantage of collective capacities to revalorize space by offering for a couple of years, three years, uh, to open these abandoned uh, railway stations. So that people in the vicinity can use and reinvent and incorporate self-managed, relatively self-managed uh, initiatives such as community gardens. Um, you know there are um, activities uh, related with uh, sports activities for the youth, for the creative youth um, uh, related to art and culture, and and so on. So this uh, so that very clearly, the idea is that. Uh, this alliance between the municipality and, and developers uh, provide space for the commons to appear, so that the commons can reimagine, reinvent, and revalorize, revalue uh, those spaces which are uh, relatively marginalized and and and, um, and they usually occupy a. Uh, a complicated um, place in the in the local imaginary. Some of them were um, uh, occupied by uh, illegal migrants and and, and 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 so on and so forth. So that, as I said, the strategy is to open them, to open these spaces for a limited period of time, two three years, so that the community um, uh, reimagines them and then come uh, uh, the, you know, the standard developments, uh, of course, those commons will be dismantled and uh, the standard development of residential units and offices and so on will be developed, right? Um, The the project was very clear, but the pandemic uh, broke uh, uh, in, in between. So, it's not, you know, not all of them have finally developed this, this strategy, but yeah, some of them are, uh, are already ongoing.
0: Yeah, I think that will be interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, last but not least, um, I think it's also important to touch on the conclusion uh, in the book, which is a shift away from the historical looking into the past um, and actually asks us what happens with the commons uh, for the future. And I found it interesting when you write that even as the commons by definition are to remain independent of the state, uh, yet progressive state planning is imperative to assist this project of commoning. And a few uh, recommendations that you, or a few sort of suggestions that you have are that the state can do this by providing a barrier against the market, allowing for expansion of communal projects, and providing an external monitoring system to balance the local and racial pursuits. Um, What are some of your thoughts as you were weaving in these um, suggestions and theorizations, and how do you see, how do you imagine a more egalitarian society uh, as a result of these efforts?
1: Well, yes, uh, of course, we are here entering the, the, the terrain of a speculation. Um, the, the, the core, the body of the book, as, as we have been discussing, is, is, is a historical narrative. But it has a kind of a bleak closing with the chapter on Milan where creativity itself is somehow captured, you know, and enclosed. So, I, yes, I felt I, I wanted uh, to end the book on a more positive uh, note. <clears throat> because um I, I still believe that there there's still uh, uh mileage and and, and terrain to, to 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 work especially with some uh utopian aspects of of planning that are embedded uh, in the and are somehow part of the of the discipline even despite this um very kind of dark um past that that it has you know um so yes it's it's uh, I I always think about this chapter um with an anecdote um w- when I was uh, a young planner trying to uh use the, the the discipline for the things I I thought uh that uh, were needed especially regarding these uh, groups I I usually encountered um uh, uh Several times, and I mean, this happened several times actually with this uh, um, explicit or literal uh, sentence that some older colleagues uh, told me, Well, Alvaro, you know, planning is not meant to make the revolution, right? And, and after many years of research, I have to say that they were, uh, in a certain sense, totally right. If you think of the revolution in terms of emancipatory politics, this is not the stuff of planning. Although, of course, uh, planning has contributed to revolutionize uh, space and to bring about a profound social and, and territorial change. So as I, as I said in the conclusion, I wanted to, to turn the gaze the, the towards a future. Uh, so it uh, inevitably adopts a more theoretical and, and speculative uh, orientation. Um, so I speculate about um, this possibility of turning the commons into a basis for alternative or post-capitalist, post-capitalist forms of urbanization. I use this notion of uh, communist urbanization to designate a form of a space production that would prioritize the protection and and promotion of uh, collective autonomy, of collective emancipation and and self-reproduction. And as you say, I interrogate the role that that planning might have in in this um, project. Um, In the the last chapter on Milan, actually, we have seen that uh, planning is increasingly engaging the commons by absorbing grassroots uh, urbanism. So I wonder, if this dialectic um, could be reversed somehow, if we can think of a mass appropriation of, of uh, planning and, and urbanization, uh, and I suggest, and I strongly believe this, that planning is far too powerful to be abandoned or ignored. Uh, so I speculate about what would happen if deprived communities around the world, because the, the final, uh, the conclusion also looks at the majority world it is no longer focused on the on western countries so i i i, I yes i speculate about what happened if, if this if the private communities around the world try to subvert and reconcile the planning project with uh, the ongoing emergence of of the commons and yes i address these aspects these questions of uh who should be the actors behind this effort I think about the role planners and the state might play about the features that this commons-based urbanization should have and so on. In order to do that I engage more explicitly this is something that somehow is behind the whole narrative throughout the book but in the the conclusion I engage more explicitly with the tradition of radical planning which is uh, relatively minor but nevertheless um, um, persistent uh, tradition of, of planning theory um, that um, have has um, worked with this uh, idea that that, uh, that communities themselves uh, plan and that they can um, uh, develop their own strategies to self-manage their neighborhoods their spaces that they that these strategies are uh, especially targeted at securing forms of self-reproduction, of delinking from from um, um, the, the broader um, capitalist arrangements, and, and and so on. And just as this tradition, I find this need to to. To reach a sort of compromise with uh, the presence and the role of state of states and of uh, state planners in in these processes, you know. So uh, the idea is that, and this is something that other authors have uh, also um, suggested. Authors such as Amanda Huron, for instance, or Stavros Estabrides, um, the idea that Commoners uh, must find the way to to coexist with uh, states. That planners uh, working from uh, within the states um, should. Um, learn the pedagogies of uh, commoning and try to use their uh, tools and, and their um, uh, mechanisms and, and instruments to try to protect and, and foster these spaces of autonomy. So somehow it's not a matter of designing these spaces, of course, but of providing a space and protecting these spaces from the encroachment of markets, of... Um, uh, other interests that might harm uh, this uh, community capacities to, to self-manage these spaces. So, yes, planners somehow ha- have to adopt this this dual perspective, you know, from within the state, they should use the power that the state has uh, and the mechanism that uh, uh, planning policies have uh, to protect and... And nurture somehow the commons, and working uh, from inside communities, they can become a sort of uh, facilitators uh, or, or um, um, mediators uh, between communities and, and, and the states.
0: Great. Uh, before we end, uh, would you care to share what you're working on uh, next? And what's upcoming projects, uh, what are some of your upcoming projects? Mm.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, Well, actually several things. Um, I'm, these very ideas at the end of the book, I'm trying to extend them. Uh, um, I'm particularly, I'm looking at uh, struggles around commodity frontiers to see if uh, the commons play or might play a role in, in, in attempts to resist the advance and unfolding of of these frontiers and and to build alternative patterns of urbanization, this idea of communist urbanization as an alternative form of urbanization based on the logics of the commons rather than the logic of the commodity explored particularly in these frontier spaces. I'm also interested in uh, the recent uh, revival of the debate about uh, the origins of capitalism through contributions in the field of global history and environmental history, and I'm planning to to dive into this problem using the lens of space and urbanization to see if this particular viewpoint uh, helps to um, develop different or alternative periodizations and 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 explanations about the origins of capitalism, and and I'm. I'm also interested, although this is still um, in a very preliminary stage, I should say, in what we can learn from communal spaces to confront different forms of collapse, uh, you know, extreme uh, environmental, um, economic, and, and social distress that some people are announcing for the near future. So... Uh, Yes, how the idea of the Commons can be put into dialogue with uh, these ongoing conversations about subsistence strategies, uh, eco-socialism, degrowth, and and so on.
0: That's so exciting. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you, Alvaro. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Now, thank you for, for the invitation, Taeva, and thank you for engaging the, the book. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, and I hope uh, the message of the book will uh, appeal not only to planners, but also to, to people beyond the planning discipline.